Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics Uncensored. I am Ali Milani, your host on Fubar Radio, where we talk all things politics. Um, thank you to everyone who's listening in and to those who are going to be watching. Just a quick FYI, if I look like Michael Keaton's Batman as I'm moving in the studio, it's because I've got a really bad neck injury. So please send me sympathies and, and flowers, if you will. Um, but that might explain why I'm moving my whole body. It's not so, some sort of political decision uh, <laughs> or, or something that's been focus grouped that, that, that polls really well. It's just my neck hurts. Um, we have a, a wonderful show for you this evening. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the theme of the show is going to be around the politicians we get. If you have heard me say anything over the last sort of 10 episodes, uh, regardless of the topic that we're talking about, I tend to speak about how we get the very worst class of politicians in Westminster. And so I want to pick up that theme throughout the show. But we start as we do every week, which is the week unwrapped, where we speak about some of the big topics uh, around the country and in our politics, uh, sometimes international, but mostly based in Britain. And today in the studio, we have an awesome guest, uh, Mete Koban, CEO of My Life, My Say, which uh, really empowers young people around the country and one of the young youngest councillors in Hackney. Mete, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ali. You've travelled down today really far to see us. Um, start talk, talk to me a little about, about your journey in Hackney Council and how that's come about. Yeah, so I mean, like, I'm firstly really happy to be here. Uh, I'm I'm a Hackney boy, so I've grown up in Hackney all my life, and I guess what really got me into politics at a very young age is, you know, Hackney's a very trendy, hipster place to live now, very expensive to live now. Uh, but when I was growing up, obviously, had one of the worst levels of crime in the country. Uh, I was one of six to three percent of eleven-year-old pupils who couldn't go to school in my borough because between ninety-seven and two thousand three, more than half the schools uh, had shut down. So. Naturally, you know, as you start to see things changing around in your community, we had the Olympics, you know, London's Tech City, London's nightlife with Shoreditch, and loads of job opportunities, loads of new housing. You know, I wanted to make sure that people who look inside like me actually benefit from that change. So, you know, as a kid, I've always felt uh, powerless, unheard, mm -hmm. and I just felt it was really important to not just complain about these things, but actually yeah. get involved, you know? So you spoke about look and sound like me. That's what sort of caught me about your journey, because I, I was also a counselor in Hillingdon, and I think it's safe to say, regardless of the party, councillors tend to be older, retired, sort of folks who have the time and energy to give back. But it's so important because we had someone on the show last week that said, um, I think it was Hamza who was the Lord Mayor of Westminster. Uh, he, he put it quite poignantly. He said, well, you can either get into politics or politics can get into you. Um, and so it's so important to get people from our backgrounds, particularly young voices, into politics. What sparked you to stand for councillor? And you're also a cabinet member now, which is which is huge, which you don't often see with a younger, uh, with younger councillors. So, what sort of drove you into the council? Yeah, is I it mean, one specific policy issue, or was it just wanting to 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 make a difference in the community? Look, I, I think a bit like Hamza said, you know, if you don't do politics, politics will do you. As yeah, I've always said, and I think for me, I didn't even know what a councillor was until about six months before I put myself forward for it, mm. um, and that's partly because you know. I think young people and people from our backgrounds care about issues that affect them, but the problem is they don't see traditional forms of politics as a vehicle to address the issues that they care about. Or in the councils, they don't see people like them, so they think that, exactly. that's not really for me. Yeah, and also, like, when you say, what is a councillor, I used to think, are you talking about the sort of the therapist councillor? You know, like, the, the <laughs> yeah, one who yeah, gives yeah. you advice about your relationship advice or, yeah. or anything else. I, I didn't know what a councillor was because no one had ever educated us about it. So... It was only until, you know, I started to, as I say, I started to get involved in more community activism. I got particularly involved in the Save EMA campaign in mm -hmm. 2010. Um, I benefited from that. Um, yeah, as that's the educational maintenance allowance that we, yeah. that students used to get. I also got it when in, in sixth form, which is now gone. Yeah, yeah which was a, a big game changer for me because I used to get 30 quid from yeah. EMA and uh, I used to work in Chelsea's stadium match day selling hot dogs <laughs> and 60 quid from there 90 quid a week that's, that's your week set <laughs> yeah I remember the 30 quid we only got it I don't know if it was the same for you but you had to show up on time to classes otherwise yeah, they yeah, took your yeah, EMA yeah. away and nothing has motivated a group of students more to get on time than that yeah. EMA and if yeah. you were late you would like beg your teacher yeah please please put yeah. me on time yeah. but yeah I mean I, I and then so I I thought to myself look I, I'm from Stoughton Inton in Hackney uh, there was the elections coming up in 2014. The Labour Party started to pick candidates uh, in 2013, the year before. And 
I put my hat in the ring and back was then. That, was there anyone sort of pushing you, saying you should think about it, or any existing councillors, MPs, or anyone sort of like a mentor role? Because often that's 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 the case. Yeah. You'd be doing a lot of good work, and someone would say, "Have you thought about this?" Because uh, yeah. when I was standing, when I first stood to be councillor, it was one of the local party officials who was like, "Oh, you're doing this campaigning stuff. Would you?" Cons-? And that was the first time I'd ever considered it. Did you have anything similar? Yeah. So I, I had uh, I had campaigned um, in the 2010 general election uh, in the head the HQ of the Labour Party and. Someone who actually got involved in the LGA Labour, which is the local mm-hmm. government um, of the Labour Party, had called me to Westminster for coffee and said to me, look, like, there are some selections happening in your yeah. area. Have you thought about running for uh, for council? And I said, you know, I don't really know what it is. And so he, he talked me through it and he said, have a think about it and I'll put you in touch with some people locally mm-hmm. in Hackney. Um, and and that was for me, like, sounded like something I wanted to do. Something like I was doing anyway in my yeah. community of being an activist. And so, absolutely, you're right. You know, you kind of need that edge in hand to sort of say, hey, yeah. like... And also, the reality is, Ali, as well, you would know this as well. For most people uh, of our backgrounds, particularly uh, with, you know, our lived experiences, you kind of need... Um, you kind of need someone to push yeah. you. You know, you feel a bit sometimes, is right for, for me, you don't have that level of confidence. Yeah. Um, I was fearless, mm-hmm. for sure, but I wasn't confident, which I think could be too... Well, much. you need that door broken down for you, I think. Yeah. Once we step through it, I think just, like you say, our lived experience kind of forces us to get things through. But um, in order for you to even conceive that that's an option, I sometimes think you need a sort of guiding gentle hand to kind of say, no, these yeah. are the sort of spaces for you. So you've, you've not just a counsellor now, you... You, you're in the cabinet uh, doing some important work. Tell me a little bit about, uh, we were just talking off air about um, bringing uh, parking controls in-house because that yeah. sounded amazing. I want people to hear that. Yeah, so I, look, I love being a cabinet member because I think I've been a councillor now for nine years, but the last two and a half years I've been a cabinet member. Mm. And honestly, like the difference you can make when you're- More than MPs, I say. If you, I think being a cabinet member at local government, you often have more impact than a backbench MP will. Absolutely. I mean, look, I oversee a portfolio of over 200 million pounds from- Everything that matters to people from, you know, making sure the streets are clean, bins getting collected, uh, traffic management. And God, do people care about their bins, which Massively. I learned about, yeah. Exactly. And so with parking, what we've done recently, something that I'm most proud of, look, I've done loads of things I think that we could be very proud of. But so this one, what I was explaining to Ali was that we basically, our parking officers that you see parking, the ones that issue tickets outside, mm-hmm. they were outsourced service. So they worked for a third party company that we had a contract with tradition, um, historically as a council. We now brought all of those officers, so there's over 100 of those, uh, back in-house. So they now work on Hackney Council contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a two-year-long negotiation with unions involved as well. Um, the minimum increase in salary that they've had is 31%, uh, which That's is brilliant. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, their hours have been compressed so that they're basically now doing a four-day working week, uh, which, mm-hmm. again, it's, it's phenomenal. It's going to change their lifestyle. I mean, they could spend more time with their family, friends. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, and also things like, you know, uniform before they were given one shirt to wear, whereas yeah, yeah. now, you know, we're able to equip them with like proper uniforms so they don't have to go out into their own pocket yeah. and buy the uniform. And that's, look, the cost of living crisis, uh, as well as I think, you know, issues around mental health and being overworked. I think I wanted you to tell that story on here. You know, some people might say it's not a sexy story bringing parking attendants in house, but this is. You know, someone who's gone into cabinet and made a real difference on real people's lives, you know, that 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 will often be overlooked. And the impact that that has on people, th- yeah. I mean, over 30 percent increase in pay, more time to spend with your families and you, you get things like uniform and other things looked after. It's huge. Yeah, massive. I mean, those families, I mean, imagine like the difference it's going to make to them. Like yeah. you say, that's exactly what politics should be about. That's Sometimes why we get caught up in all this national stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's like. It's actually the real life things you could do, like you would know when you were a councillor yeah. as well. That makes a big difference. Yeah, those day to day issues. That's why you get into politics. And um, uh, and I really wanted you to tell that story. So we go back to the week on route. We this is the, where we go through some of the big stories of the week. Um, you spoke about a two hundred million pound uh, portfolio. Now let's talk about Nigel Farage's portfolio. <laughs> um, Jesus, let me get through this with um with a straight face. So Nigel Farage, Farage has failed to deny he has too little money at the exclusive bank used by the royal family to keep an accountant. The Brexit campaigner and former leader of the UK Independence Party last week claimed that a bank, which he has now confirmed as Coots, has decided to stop doing business with him. Mr Farage claimed that this was due to him being a politically exposed person or a PEP. The BBC reported this morning that the reason for the withdrawal of the service was due to Mr Farage falling below the wealth required by Coots. So this was originally Farage went on Twitter and said, I'm being oppressed, right? My bank accounts have been shut down. 
Later, we find out that that's that his bank is with Coots, who I think is a very wealthy, prestigious bank, and he's fallen within the wealth limits. Mete, do you feel sorry for Nigel Farage? Look, there's two sides to this, right? Yeah. There's a funny side, uh, which I think is just like, you know, totally farcical, yeah. like what's going on on social media. There's a worrying side for me, which I don't think necessarily has been picked up on too much, mm -hmm. which is that it feeds into what Farage has been in this country for the last 20, 30 years, which is he's constantly trying to turn the public against across against our institutions. And it feeds into this whole conspiracies uh, that you've started to see emerging mm -hmm. around, you know, money, digitization, like post COVID and all sorts of things. And I think that for me worries me. I mean, I see it in my own like role in, in Hackney, for example, I mean, we do these things, Ali, which is like the low traffic neighborhood schemes. Yeah, People will come out with the most nonsense things saying, you know, like- 15 I'm, minute cities or something. Yeah, like and yeah. you know, like somehow I'm employed by the World Economic Forum. Yeah, But people believe that sort of stuff. And I think what Farage is doing actually is, you know, only his bank knows the reason why he's been declined um, from having an account there. Um, and I think it is true that Coots does have a minimum threshold. Um, yeah. I, I think everyone's... Neither of us bank with Coots, yeah, so we no, can't exactly. confirm that. Um, Maybe if I... you had been employed by the World Economics Forum, you might be able exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's a more serious point, which is, you know, what Farage has been doing in this country for the last 20, 30 years, he's constantly been bashing away our, our mainstream institutions and constantly turning people and making them sceptical yeah. about everything we engage with. I think what he's an expert at is I think uh, he's an expert storyteller in politics. He knows where to create boogeymen. He knows where to create enemies. And I think what he's maybe trying to do here is to reestablish his anti-establishment credentials. Because, okay. um, you know, he one of the reasons I think Brexit was so successful was he was able to, to sort of weaponize and hijack the debate, a real economic angst amongst the country and blame immigrants and blame the EU. And so everything that was wrong with our lives, we had a common boogeyman to attack, and that was the EU. Um, and I think he's kind of lost that and he's trying to reestablish his anti-establishment sort of credentials. The problem is he couldn't be more establishment, but also, uh, you know, I think he's he's running out of capital in, in the political sphere and maybe that that's what this is about. Yeah, I think, he's, as you say, I think it's quite funny because I think he's just trying to find something new to to fight, you yeah. know, like Brexit's no longer, obviously, I mean, that's done now. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, one would argue he got what he wanted out of that. Um, and I think what you do see with Farage is that Throughout the year, he's constantly attempting at 20 different things and he's constantly mm -hmm. starting a new party. Yeah. He's always doing different things and, you know, one catches on and this is just another latest. Uh... But these, I think you're right. The attacks on the institutions have massive impact. I think we saw that with COVID. The fact that COVID followed Brexit and we had that sort of Michael Gove, I'm tired of experts thing, had a real impact on people's trust when they're told to stay at home, when they're told to take a vaccine, all these kinds of stuff. Yeah. It has real impacts on people's yeah. trust in public services, does it not? It I mean, does... you say you felt that with the LTNs, right? Yeah, I mean, people certainly do feel like, you know, I mean, I think generally now speaking, like, you know, we, interestingly, for My Life, My Say, we, done, we do a poll, which is a youth index with opinion every six months. And we're now on its third wave. And there's certain questions around trust in institutions. So it looks at like, you know, like Parliament, you know, Bank of England, all those police, everything. And then also ask questions about, do you think, you know, what's your levels of trust in politics and everything and politicians? And what you consistently see over the last uh, sort of 18 months in this country among young people, and these are young people surveyed across the UK, all across the UK, is is that there's a rapid increase in levels of trust continuing to sort of go towards a more negative side in terms mm -hmm. of young people just feeling feeling like, you know, either politicians uh, don't serve uh, their best interests, either institutions aren't serving their best interests. We live in a time where, you know, young people feel like you know, average rent in London is £2,850. Yeah. Um, average first-time buyer needs over 100k yeah. in deposit to be able to buy a property. The prospect of getting a good job uh, that pays you decent wages is very difficult. You know, I know young people, like they, I always talk about this staffer that I have that works for me for my life, I say, you know, comes from Birmingham, parents from the Caribbean, you know, working class family, uh, works really hard. He's like, Mete, I'll do everything the system tells me to do. Mm -hmm worked hard, got a good education, went to Cambridge to do my masters. But he's like, I've still got to make decisions. Like after work, I can't just spontaneously go out for dinner with my workmates. Yeah. Because if I do, I can't go out on the weekend yeah. because that's my disposable income. And well, so it's that promise that we were told that if you go to university or if you go do a technical college course and you work hard and you do your fair share that you'll have a fair shot at, at, at a comfortable life. That doesn't exist. Exactly. I think we know uh, certainly in London, 
that doesn't exist and we're the first generation that are worse off than our parents yeah um and i think that 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 that's a real blow to people both in their mental health but also their material life yeah and then, and there's a real seriousness to this to this for our story which is i'm trying to relate back to this which is this is constantly what you know people like farage and people on the far right have constantly done like donald trump and others mm-hmm. which is they take people's very real lived experiences and those who feel left behind from the system and basically turn them and as you say they're very establishment but actually yeah. they try to feel their anger to mm-hmm. kind of get them well it's easy isn't it and i said this on on, on another program today it's it's an easy it's an easy explanation for what's wrong with you so if you're sat at, in an NHS waiting room, and we're going to get to the NHS now. If you're sat in an NHS waiting room and it's filled to the brim and you've waited nine hours and no one has seen you, what Farage does and says, hey, look to your right, that immigrant family to your right, they've gone in before you. How is that fair? How is that yeah. right? Right? We've got too many people here. Or if your kids can't get to school. Whereas we know the real situation is around the, the starving of our public services, of the finances and the resources they need and running them effectively. But what they, I think what Trump and Farage and, and Boris and et al are experts at is they give you an easy villain of the story. And it's often yeah. the black and brown family next door. Um, and, and, and they weaponize that. So we're going to get into the healthcare system uh, next. So the next story is the National Health Service faces a future of enormous challenges. Its chief executive has warned on its 75th birthday. In a speech to mark the anniversary of its creation, Amanda Pritchard the head of the NHS England described the publicly funded service as a cornerstone of national life in Britain. But she said its staff were battling a combination of COVID backlogs and record demand for services, challenges that workers were ready to meet head on. So the NHS is the theme that we've had on the show um, uh, for, for a number of episodes now. Uh, it is the 75th birthday. It's one of the crown jewels, I think, in, in British society. It's something that we're really, really proud of. I worked in America, and it was something that I spoke of glowingly as an idea. But here we are, you know, record, uh, I think, numbers in waiting lists. of 7 million people waiting uh, in the waiting list. Social care services really on the floor. And the future of the NHS, I think, now is in question. We have had think tanks that the government work really closely with on this show, talking about moving it to a private paid service we've had Sajid Javid go on TV and talk about you know former health minister talk about maybe there needs to be a, a front-facing charge for people using the service the very NHS I think is going to be on the ballot at the next general election what do you think Mate? yeah I, I totally agree I mean I think you know this is the classic Tory strategy which is run it down to not only its knees but its face basically to the yeah. point where you know you start the conversation then becomes you know what, like no one gets a good um, sort yeah. of uh, experience from the NHS and then it sort of starts to then become about whether it's sort of you start to charge or pay for it. I mean, you know, like you said, as like my family, for example, we we come from Cyprus um, and my brother was born with uh, with a leg short, one leg short mm. and the other leg. It was a very rare condition uh, that he had. And, you know, he had an 18-month surgery at the Royal London. You know, it was the NHS that really gave him another shot at life. Otherwise, mm-hmm. he would have had, you know, one leg. Uh, he would have, had, would have been amputated. Um, and it's just, you know, it's it's really heartbreaking to see yeah. that this great institution, where, as you say, like, I travel around the world, especially in America, like, people look at the NHS as an amazing Bro, model. When I was in Cal, I was shitting myself in America that I would get sick. Yeah. I had health insurance, like, you know, the travel insurance yeah. that you get. But I was just bricking it because I was out there for a month, right? And I was going, if I don't know what sort of bill I'm going to be hit with. And I don't think, you know, I think we're now generations into the healthcare system where we've always had the NHS. What worries me is exactly what you're saying. They're burying it into the ground and then they're going to do what we used to see at universities, which is going to bring the glossy leaflets and say, this is what it could look like if it was private. And all you'd have to pay is £10 a month, for example, a Netflix subscription, and you'd have this wonderful service. The reality is we know which way it will go. And what worries me the most is people like me who used to say, Yo, these guys want to privatize the service fully. We were kind of called conspiracy theorists. and They'd never be able to do it. It's got an 80% approval rating. But they're saying the quiet part out loud. We've had it on this show and Sergio Jevitt has gone out and said it. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's funny because you talk about America. Like, one of my friends, she had a, recently had a crash, uh, a car crash. Oh, and, no. you know, thankfully she's fine. But basically as soon as people arrived to help her i was like do you want to call the ambulance god like, no, no please she's like, please yeah. don't call the ambulance because the bill yeah, she's yeah, gonna yeah. get so she just had to jump on a on a taxi and yeah, yeah, to yeah. take herself to the hospital which is i just find quite like you know we don't really appreciate what yeah. we have here in the I uk got, i got kidney stones the last time i went to america oh. 
And I was sat in the hospital. And my missus was like, do you want to go to the hospital? I was like, Christ, no, let, I'll, I'll take the pain, but I'm not going. Because you have no idea how much you're going to end up charging. People go bankrupt in America just yeah. off of heart attacks, for example. Exactly. And I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, look, I think there is a strategy here, which, you know, like some may say, as you say, like, you know, it might sound um, like a prejudged view. But the reality is, is that the, the, everyone knows that what the Tories are trying to do is run the, the NHS down to the ground mm-hmm. to the point where basically even ordinary people who were supportive of the NHS have yeah. a bad experience of the NHS and then start to sort yeah. of buy into that concept. Do you th- so I have been, what I've been saying and what I try and say to activists and trying not to be super partisan, but everybody on the show knows I'm a Labour Party member yeah. and, and supporter. I really do think at the next election, the NHS and the future of the NHS is literally on the ballot. I know we've said it before, but I really think, I don't think the NHS could survive another Conservative government. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think if you have, you know, like, based on how we're going now, like, you know, unless we get a Labour government in power, and I know I'm being a bit political here, but unless you get a Labour government in power, you know, there mm. is a real risk that basically the NHS won't exist in mm. the way it does in like six or seven it's years. Just, I, yeah, I don't, I don't even think, I don't think it's po- party political. It's just a reality. Yeah. If we, you've got two options of prime minister in the, in, the, in the next government. One, I think, destroys the NHS and the other one saves it. Yeah. And it's just, you know, like, it's this conversation about the NHS is it's interesting as well because... I just find it like, you know, mind boggling how we even debate about whether healthcare should be free or education should be free. I mean, these are like basic human rights. Mm-hmm. You know, we pay our taxes. Yeah. Like at the very least, if I'm paying my tax or I entering that contract with the state, yeah. the very least they could do for me is actually like provide me a what, What's remarkable to me is we constantly have politicians come on this show and I, I, I face them on other shows that had their healthcare for free, that had their education for free, that now want to take that away from other people. They got to where they are you know, enjoying and, and being privileged to have all these services and yet they want to take them away. And I want to talk about that, the class of politicians we have, because that's rea- reality. You know, we've said it here plenty of times. We can't keep sending the same kind of people to Westminster and expecting a different result. Yeah. And that's what story, our final story uh, of this segment is. It's SNP MP Myra Black is stepping down at the next general election. Miss Black, the party's deputy leader at Westminster, became the parliament's youngest MP since 1832 when she was elected at the age of 20 in 2015. She's the sixth SNP MP to announce that they will not contest the, ne- contest the next election, which is expected to be held in 2024. In a statement, Miss Black, 28, described Westminster as outdated, sexist and toxic working environment. Mete, I want to lastly talk to you about a little bit about this because we've spoken about sort of non-traditional people getting into politics. Party politics aside, Myra was kind of looked at as one of the youngest MPs and quite exciting. Um, I have often said, you don't have to agree with me on this, but I've often said we have probably have the worst class of politicians anywhere in the Western world, in Westminster. It's often really just low-grade hacks and technocrats and um, often very, very old, sort of representing one group of people, um, these sort of Etonian conveyor belt of politicians what do you think about you know the fact that someone who was so young went into Westminster and it seems to have chewed her up and spat her right back out I mean look it's not it's not surprising right like I mean I think if you I mean even at a local level I'm sure as when you were a councillor as well and obviously you stood for for parliament it's a very challenging environment because the reality is is the way it's those institutions have been built hasn't been built for normal people no. or normal working class people or normal people from... It's designed to lock me and you out and get Boris Johnson and David Cameron Exactly. Out. And, you know, there's always an element, you know, like one of the things that I always reflect on and I always keep my friends close from people who aren't in politics is I always so, sort of sometimes wonder like how in touch I am still in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, do I start to sound different because I'm starting to like, you know, get in with a certain crowd and everything. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really tricky to find that balance of being able to sort of like maneuver within the yeah. sort of the the institution that yeah. is not designed for people. But it changes like you. I It does change you. I, <laughs> one of the funniest things, and I would recommend this, uh, I play a Friday football with, with friends, uh, friends f- from all the way back in school. And the changing room was what kept me in check during the campaign. Because yeah. I'd be changing and someone would come in and be like, yo, I saw you on Sky News on Friday. You were talking shit. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but that keeps you sort of connected because once you enter the system, it does really mold you and shape you. And it's very difficult to stay true to who you are. Yeah, because, you know, like ultimately, you're constantly like you're surrounded by people who aren't in your natural environment mm-hmm. and aren't from your, typical, your, your natural appetite. So yeah. th- there's an element of that. I think, you know, we've got to, having said all of that, you know, I think we've got to understand that politics isn't a, uh, it's not going to be a quick fix and it's not, you know, either this or that. It's got to be 
progress and not subtracting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, when I went into politics, similar to, I'm sure, like, as you went, when you went into it as well, and hopefully continue, is, for me, it's like, recognizing that you're not always going to get what you always want and 100%, but I'm able to add more than take away. And, you know, sometimes it can be a very frustrating mm-hmm. environment, but actually, like, you know, having people like us there yeah. is better for our community. just about moving the pencil. I think progress is always is always preferred to not progress. And we, we've run out of time. I've had a great time with you in the studio. Last question. You're going to stand for Parliament again? Uh, I really love my job. Don't spin. Hackney. Don't spin me. <laughs> no, genuinely. And I like, I look, I've got no reason to. I love what I do in Hackney. I would like to stand if there's a place that yeah. I think... If the right opportunity arose. Exactly. Wonderful. And I think we definitely need more people from your background and people like yourself in Parliament. So I'm really glad to hear that. That was Mete Koban, CEO of My Life, My Say, councillor in Hackney and maybe future MP. Joining me next, we're going to stay on the topic of Myra Black and the, 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 the politicians we get in Westminster. We're joined by Gina Miller, activist and leader of the True and Fair Party, who are focused on cleaning up politics and modernising democracy. She will be joining us after this. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. We have got the lovely money from The Apprentice. Lord Sugar's pretty big on Twitter, isn't he? And I know he has, he, I mean, he's a big blocker. You get blocked quite easily by, by Lord Sugar. Um, do you find you're able to have quite a frank and deep, good conversation with him? No, I think criticism is a very different thing, though, to having those honest conversations. And I mm-hmm. think he does respect transparency and honesty and upfrontness. Um, but as my mum always says, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Every Wednesday from 6pm. Fubar Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. This is Politics Uncensored, where we talk about all things politics across the UK and the world. Today, I've just had Mete leave the studio. We were just talking about... Uh, the kind of politicians we get in Westminster and the kind of politics as a result we get. This week, we've seen SNP MP Myra Black announce that she will be stepping down at the next election. She was the MP who became the youngest in 300 years after being elected at just the age of 20. In a statement, she has described Westminster as outdated, sexist and toxic working environment. And staying on this theme, we have the wonderful Gina Miller, activist and leader of the Truth and Fair Party, who are focused on cleaning up politics, modernizing democracy and fighting corruption. Gina, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about, a lot of people might not have heard about the Truth and Fair Party. I think you're at the beginning of your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Hi, Ali. So thank you so much for inviting me on today. Um, Yes, it's actually against a backdrop of what you've just described as a toxicity in Westminster. We have a something called the good chap model of government, which is based on the idea that people we elect will behave like good chaps. Well, I'm sorry, but there's nothing that illustrates that in the last few years that we've seen, or even decades. It's totally outdated. It's based on a system where there's no accountability. And the culture, as you said from um, uh, Ms. Black, is completely toxic. It's completely out of control. So the systemic failures need addressing. And none of the main political parties will actually do what they need to do because, of course, they benefit from the system. So we believe that it is now time for a complete reforming of all the systems, the way our parliament works, the way our MPs are accountable, and the way electoral system works and the corruption. It's time for a full and fair clean out of politics. So one of the questions I have is, why did you choose to go down the route of a new party as opposed to the a kind of more traditional approach of looking to join the party where you might be most ideologically aligned and try and change things from within? Uh, I think you kind of that's spoke very... about this root and branch change. I imagine that's the answer. But why did you just decide to go down yeah, the route yeah, of a brand ab- new thing? You, you're absolutely right. I mean, I did look around. I mean, I actually was offered to take on the leadership of the Lib Dems and I was approached by other parties. But the problem is, you know, sound bites and, you know, three to five year timetables are not going to fix our system. And it's not going to fix the really big issues we have coming down the track. So I always said I'd never become a politician, Ali. I have to say, I always <laughs> That's said how I'd we all start, never, ever become a politician. But what I've realized is that, um, you know, it's so toxic there that you have to go into the, um, you know, the, the nest of vipers and try and clean it out from within. So I think myself and the other candidates, there's, I'm standing myself in Epsom and Ewell against Chris Grayling. There's nine of us standing in the party. And we believe it's time to actually go into the tent and mm-hmm. start clearing it up from within. I think, so 
one of the one of the things I'm most skeptical about is is the political system, the first past the post system in the UK, um, is is so antiquated that it makes it almost impossible for new parties to arise and challenge the big boys. Um, do you not think that it's almost impossible to break that barrier as long as first past the post exists for new parties to to arise and have really any impact? I'm very willing to fail, but I think we have to try. You know, the Electoral Reform Society started in 1884. How long do we wait for electoral reform? We actually have to be more proactive than that. And for me, it's all campaigning. I've been a campaigner for 30 odd years and I've learned something very basic. It's about timing. And if you look at what's happened post-COVID, what that's shone a light on, the corruption, the unaccountability, and actually the Boris Johnson and Liz Truss governments have helped us in this argument because people now can see that the system is completely broken and that we need something different and that the main parties will not do the necessary root and branch reforms if necessary. So mm -hmm. in that political sentiment, in that voter sentiment, and also with the outcome very likely to be a hung parliament, there is opportunity. I'm not saying it will come again. I think that it's going to be really, really tough. And then I'd also add that if you look at the polling, all the poll polls, what's very disturbing is a number of people saying they're not going to vote, like none of the above. They want something different. I have to try. I'm willing to fail, mm -hmm. but I think we have to try yeah. because this opportunity rarely comes in our political system. So you speak about root and branch change and fundamentally changing the system. What does that look like? What are some of the things that you'd like to see introduced to make the system truer and fairer? So 10th of July, Monday, we launch our pre-election manifesto, which will detail an awful lot of this. Give us but some But I can sneak share peeks. with you a couple of things. <laughs> yeah. One is that um, prime ministers should not have prerogative power. A prerogative power is a throwback to Henry VIII. All prime ministers and the executive should not be able to bypass parliament. We elect them and they should be answerable to parliament. Second, I'd say that, believe it or not, there is no, if you look at what's going on with the toxicity and the behaviour and the, I mean, the scandalous behaviour of, of our leaders in parliament, they have no contract of employment. You can't hold them accountable. They're literally answered to no one. Well, they answer and to the electorate, don't they? Life. Yeah, every they're five held, years. Yeah, they're held to account every they five are years. Lucky if they get a recall. But that's not good enough. What about in the meantime? Every day they should be answerable. But surely Boris, and, what's just know, has... And, and there's a problem. But Gina, so surely what's happened to Boris Johnson just now is a good example of accountability. He misbehaved in public office, was held account by parliament and has had to leave parliament as a result. And in the meantime, the toxicity he's actually managed to bring into Parliament, the lack of accountability, the... Um, well, no, he know, has Russian been held to account, hasn't he? To... I mean, Parliament would argue so... he has been held to account. He, he misbehaved. There was an investigation. There was a conclusion of, of, of the committee and he's been forced out of Parliament. Is that not just... A, is that not but that the takes system too working? Long. That takes too long. In the meantime, the signals to the um, electorate, the, to the public about what's acceptable, the, sig the use of our public money to have to then hold them accountable, it's a waste. We need much stronger che um, checks and balances in place so that we don't have to wait years and we don't have to waste millions of public money holding them to account. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll, just one more question. You, you spoke about taking the prerogative power away um, from uh, prime ministers. I mean, one of the reasons, not that I agree with it, but one of the reasons that's given is so the prime ministers can act quickly. Say we were invaded by Russia, very unlikely to happen, but we were invaded by Russia. Surely there isn't enough time for, for the prime minister to go into parliament and debate a response to uh, a foreign invasion into the country. Surely they should have the prerogative power to be able to deal with that immediately. So the prerogative power being put into legislation will define when it can and cannot be used. Okay. That it makes can be used sense. on yeah. the international arena at times of emergency, but mm -hmm. on the domestic arena where they're changing our rights by bypassing parliament should not be allowed. Okay. Uh, last question uh, or last theme that I kind of want to ask you is, um, you, you've spoken about uh, the, the political system changes that you want to see, but I think voters will want to hear what your politics are broader than that as well. Uh, what's the where does the party sit in terms of its general politics as it comes to economics to public services to foreign policy and those kind of things i don't expect you to outline everything as a manifesto but in general terms if you could give people an idea of what the politics of the party are yes of course so the first three we are um, pre-election manifesto will be in three parts the first bit is about constitutional reform electoral reform and combating com corruption on the electoral reform sorry the second part, I, I i i'm bouncing between the things Forgive me, but on electoral reform, would you support uh, getting rid of first past the post and replacing it with some sort of proportional representation? 100%.
it's way time it, it's way overdue um and, and procurement laws new anti-corruption legislation that's in part one part two is what we're calling the three biggies which is the economy environment and education and then part three will be about increasing access to justice and fairness um in all of those the main themes are looking at the data, not being ideologically driven, but how do we bring in solutions that create fairness and actually look at more sustainable long-term solutions? Um, so not left or right, but really looking at long-term solutions. That's the thread and theme that runs through all our policy making because we love experts, we like practitioners, and we like users. So, we so you're not... all our policies are being made by panels. So you're not Michael Gove in the post-expert world? No, not no. at all. Well, um, I'm always really skeptical when someone says not left and right. When it comes to issues like education, for example, or healthcare, there is a debate around the scale of investment. I think there's a huge debate going on in the country that's just sparked, for example, people like Sajid Javid and a lot of the think tanks that are now saying that the NHS should move towards a more consumer model, maybe an insurance-based model. You have people more on the left who are, who are talking about the underinvestment in our public services. When we talk about left and right, I think often it's it's thought about like football teams. In terms mm. of true and fair party, what are your views around the investment that's needed, if any, in our public services? Well, we do need investment, but that's not the, the silver bullet. You have to look at inefficiencies. You need to look at how we use technology to increase efficiencies. You mm. need to look at retention. You need to look at properly at how we train and mm. retain um, it's much bigger than just saying it's about money. Money alone will not solve but, the but one of the big, down the track. One of the big debates right now is the strikes, for example. Uh, would you be willing to meet the demands of nurses, doctors, consultants um, who are striking as a result of real-time pay cuts? Well, I think you're looking at, you know, the numbers always put out there is 35%, but that's actually negotiating starting rate. Um, so you have to look at how do we get a pay deal, but also look at the conditions and retention. Pay on its own is not the solution to keeping our staff in our health service. But they've got record wage stagnation. So I think what they would argue is you, we can't even have a starting point talking about retaining. So, for example, I think we've got a shortage of 124,000 nurses in the NHS post-Brexit. We can't even begin to address that unless we meet the real-term wage stagnation that nurses have met. So I understand that there's been a lot of conversations around we need more than just money, but money is a significant problem, is it not? Well, actually, the elephant in the room is actually Brexit. We also have huge staff shortages because we don't have people who, you know, there was a mass exodus. And so, you know, we have to actually think carefully about how we retain people. I mean, I, I know the government's workplace plan recently, for example, was to increase the number of doctors we're training and making it for a shorter period of time. But then there are who is going to train them, who's going to look at the placements and how do we retain them? There is no retention plan. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we would propose is that people coming into the public service, because we need good people in our public service, in our NHS, in our civil service, is to say that if they stay for more than five years, mm -hmm. that their student debt would be written off. So, Gina, last question. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to new parties. Um, I'm gathering that. <laughs> uh, not because I don't think that there's a place for them and there needs to be a plurality and thought in our politics. And I don't absolutely agree uh, with you as it pertains to your analysis of the corruption that exists in Westminster. I mean, I call the politicians we send into Westminster some sort of Etonian conveyor belt where we send the same people and expect a different result. I'm yeah. with you on that. The problem is, as I see the British political system, until we have electoral reform, you know, we've seen Change UK fail, we've seen Renew fail, we've seen, what's that Lawrence Fox party, uh, reform, they're, they're a joke. Where can you succeed, why can you succeed where they have failed? So Change UK was never really a political party. There were a number of MPs holding on to that, hoping they'd get elected. There were eight months. That wasn't a political party and they didn't really have any policies. So I wouldn't consider them to be a proper political um, challenge. The other parties, I mean, it, is, it isn't an easy thing to do, but I'd say, again, it's about the timing and it's about the seats we've chosen. So we've chosen seats that are outside Labour and Lib Dems' top targets. We've chosen seats that have a high percentage of what I call One Nation Tories, um, also people who across the board believe in much more principles in politics and where young people are excited to get involved but really don't see that anyone's speaking for them. So we've been very careful in the seats we've chosen. We don't have to, I don't have to have a national party. We're in a way nine independents under one party banner. If you look at what the Teals did in Australia, 
we are actually working with some of the people who help them win. And that's very much a model that we're hoping to replicate here in the UK. Okay, thank you so much. That's Gina Miller, activist and leader of the True and Fair Party. Uh, next, we're going to speak, be speaking to Jawad Razo, staying on this topic of Westminster uh, and the kind of politics we get. We've got Jawad joining us, National Officer of the FDA Union, who represent some of the parliamentary staff. He's going to be joining us after this. Fubar Radio presents as handsome as you imagine. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early, at yeah. like 7 o'clock. I would have had at least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah, <laughs> From 1pm every Monday... Welcome back to Politics Uncensored. We are talking Westminster politicians and why they all suck. One of my favorite topics, not all of them, but why so many of them, um, are why so our politics has reached the state it has and the real mistrust uh, amongst people. I think we had Mete in the studio earlier and he spoke quite eloquently about like the lack of trust young people have in politicians. We've just heard from Gino, and like I said, I'm very skeptical about these new parties, and particularly when people, you know, say I'm neither left nor right, um, but who very clearly and eloquently kind of highlights the problem of corruption within Westminster and the style of politics we get. Uh, and I'm delighted next to have Jawad Raza, National Officer of the FDA Union, who represents some of the parliamentary staff, who, who might be able to shed some light a little bit about the work uh, of of his union uh, and the work of the parliamentary staff and maybe why we get the kind of politicians and the kind of politics that we get. Jawad, thank you so much for joining us. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about what FDA Union does and the parliamentary staff it represents? Uh, absolutely. Hi, Ali, and thank you for, for having me on as well. So FDA is a trade union. Uh, we represent over 20,000 uh, managers and professionals in the civil service and also in parliament. Uh, so we represent uh, staff in the house. So for example, librarians, clerks, um, et cetera. Um, and I think for, for the last few years, so uh, since just before 2018, we've been arguing that there needed to be an independent uh, process for for complaints and we needed to be fundamentally changing that because before that the policy which was there was essentially MPs were investigating their own behaviours so any allegations which came MPs were, were on the panel they could decide whether it went forward and also they were part of that decision making so part of the thing we we helped to introduce and it was a fundamental change to say was that independent independent complaints and grievance scheme so i think for the first time ever people could actually make a complaint it would be independently independently investigated if there was a sanction uh, the independent expert panel which mm -hmm. is chaired by a former high court judge uh, was was put into place so they could actually determine sanctions and when think, did that come in you know in, so it was introduced in 2018 mm -hmm. uh, and the panel came in shortly afterwards yeah, because one of the, you know, the the thing that's sparked this conversation on the show today is SNP MP Myra Black is stepping down yeah. at the next general election. She was one of the youngest MPs ever to, I think maybe even the youngest, to ever enter Parliament at the age of 20 in 2015. She has described Westminster as outdated, sexist and a toxic working environment. Is that something that's, your, you, you know, you feel in, in the conversations with your members on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I can I can sympathise with uh, what Maury's saying there because I think a, a big element of what she was also saying was that the house needs to come into the twenty first century as well. It needs to have better employment practices. Uh, you know, for I'm me, I'm not sure the house has hit the twentieth century, let alone the twenty first century. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I think you know, it, it, there's a there's a thing here where MPs could be a role model uh, and should be a role model. Um, Parliament should be leading the way in terms of how uh, an employer operates. And actually, I find at times, when you look at the cases which come out, the culture, um, it, I find it's anything but. And it's how do you actually, you know, kind of change that as well. Do you think there's a resistance in Parliament? Because I, um, I sometimes find this, some of the archaic rules and systems are really silly in Westminster. Um, I might pick, this might sound trivial to you, but things like, I was told when I was standing for Parliament, that you had to wear a tie 
if as a man if you were going to walk into the chamber which i just thought really i never wear ties as you can tell but it's it's i i and things like you're not allowed to clap in parliament and some of these archaic rules they might sound trivial but are they not an indication of the system's unwillingness to change with the times and therefore it reflects the very worst of the culture when it comes to the toxic workplace the sexist the sexual harassment things that we've heard over the years I mean, I think there's there's two bits. I think you know w- one of the things during the the COVID lockdowns they brought into place technology, so people could actually vote. Uh, everything was a lot quicker. You weren't in divisions, lobbies, etc. Everything was being done a lot quicker. Uh, and now they're reverted again. And again, you think, well, it's something good, and we should move forward with that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other point you just made in terms of wearing a tie, and there's obviously a dress code. And one of our concerns during COVID was that MPs should be wearing masks to protect the the house of Commons staff who were there as well and they were obviously wearing one um which was there and there was nothing in the power of the speaker or anybody to to ensure that that was done for a health and well-being reason mm-hmm. um yeah you can essentially on the, say you could, on the top line how resistant is parliament to change i think it'll be interesting what what one of the things we've been pushing for recently is that if if anybody, including house staff, but uh, say we also look after the civil service. So if any one of those had committed a serious offence, which could potentially be gross misconduct, you have the element of suspending that person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've been trying to uh, look at is uh, precautionary exclusion or risk-based exclusion, as they're calling it. So if that was the case, you could exclude an MP from the parliamentary estate. Now. At the moment, the only way you can do that is if you have a gentleman's agreement. It's a voluntary agreement. We know it doesn't work because the MPs, um, I think as Gina was saying, don't have an employment contract. Nobody can kind of control that. They can just come and go as you please. So we were trying to bring in a mechanism. Can you explain that voluntary agreement a little bit more for people who might not understand? So say an MP has been found uh, to have committed sexual harassment of some kind to a parliamentary staffer. Can parliament not just... um, either temporary basis say that a person can't come onto the estate does it have to be cooperation with the parties how does that work so if there's a finding they can remove their pass mm-hmm. that doesn't preclude them coming in as a guest of somebody else so right, okay. but in the case i'm talking about so i'm talking about where somebody has been cu- accused of a serious uh, sexual offence it could be going through a police process it could be going through the independent process how any any other employer could say that that person is not permitted to to enter that yeah. suspended that pending the investigation yeah. absolutely no guilt attached this we need to investigate this but we're also trying to protect the reputation but also protect the the potential victims mm. uh, of of anything here that can't well. happen in parliament unless there's agreements from i assume it's, the parties it's a voluntary agreement uh, so right. you know hypothetically somebody could say fine i, I will do that but then they can just come back onto the estate and there's nothing precluding them from, mm-hmm. you know, somebody then kicking them off the estate, essentially. One of the things we were saying, and the House of Commons Commission did a consultation, the trade unions responded, the Standards Committee, uh, led by Chris Bryant, also responded in terms of, uh, you know, where we should go. And we drew up a list of proposals, which were meant to have been voted on two weeks ago, but instead Parliament had a debate. It's, it's essentially just pushing that back. So be, will we get that in before the summer recess? Or is this the case of it's just going to get pushed into the long grass and nothing will ever happen? Mm-hmm. And then how, you know, how do people feel safe in, in the parliamentary estate? And it's not just staff, it's visitors, it's journalists, it's everybody who visits that. Yeah. That. So one of the, um, you know, I think in recent years, following the Me Too movement, um, I think really advent of social media, and giving a platform for a lot of the uh, employees in Parliament, who people forget do a lot of the work of what goes on in the House Houses of Parliament, uh, we've seen a lot of allegations of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, racism, yes. uh, general misconduct by members of Parliament and senior staffers. Um, what is the mood music amongst your members around this alleged? toxic culture in Westminster are things at an all-time low is this how it's always been and we're just hearing about it for the first time I think I think that I mean it's obviously been happening for a long time I think having the independent 
complaint scheme means that people felt able to come forward. And again, that scheme uh, is the only independent scheme we have. And obviously it could be, be improved and we're working with the House to see how that can be done. Um, but I, I think that's highlighted it, it more. It has been going on more, but I think as we see more and more reports and sanctions, um, you know, people do feel vulnerable uh, on the estate. And it's one of those things that the, the independent complaint scheme can't change everything on its own. It's how do political leaders uh, you know, across the spectrum, because it's not just one party issue here, it's, it's across all the parties, but how, why are they not doing anything and taking that responsibility to drive that change. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, I want to see. Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned the civil service. It, within the civil service, you nobody can bring a claim, uh, any complaint against the uh, a minister unless the prime minister allows it. Um, so even to start an investigation, the prime minister has to allow it. Where we saw with Priti Patel, there was an investigation, there was a finding of bullying, and. Boris Johnson as a former prime minister just ignored that. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know that there does need to be a fundamental uh, change yeah. in culture, behaviours, uh, and everything else. And it's not all uh, MPs who who are doing this, but obviously there is a small, decent minority here that do need to change. And I think that the party leaders themselves need to kind of stand up and say how they will address this, because actually they're they're all being silent apart mm -hmm. from. You know the prime minister talking about integrity and accountability and standards etc yeah I, I can't think of anything else i've heard and actually since then all we've seen is a number of cases yeah i think the yeah. the trouble is we we've had a prime minister in boris johnson who's trampled on all of those sort of standards of behavior that the fear is that he's really lowered the bar for those who come in future do you know what? uh so i often ask this to my guests if you had if i was to appoint you supreme leader or a, a magic genie who could accomplish three things in this area that you think would go a long way in resolving some of the toxic workplace stuff that myra's talked about the sexist racism the bullying um yeah. or even just the faith in our system to work better what are three top things that you would do very quickly that you think could make a significant yeah. impact so the speaker's doing a conference at the moment and looking at MPs, staff and employment models. And I think, you know, that is a, a, a key issue uh, where the the half the time the MP is the employer for, for MP staff, at least. Uh, so I think that has to be dealt with. I think we need to implement precautionary exclusion um, as soon as feasibly possible. I also think that the, the, the senior leaders, the party leaders need to look at their own parties, look at you know all the allegations deal with them properly and actually call it out and actually start changing that that culture going forward and as a fourth point i think that the house needs to kind of come into the the modern 20th 21st century <laughs> uh in terms of its practices and kind of updating them yeah i think that that there is a real resistance from my experience in the house um just because i th think a lot of times these parliamentarians have seen these systems and these archaic sort of processes and wants to be a part of it. And once they're in, they feel like they're a part of this sort of historic chamber and changing and modernizing some of these practices. I think they think somehow changes its historic value, which I believe in no yeah. way um, no. it does. My, no, last, I agree. my last question, Jad, is, um, you know, we're at a time where we're seeing sort of record amounts of industrial action uh, across multiple different sectors. Is yeah. it possible, you won't be able to say for sure, but is it possible we might see industrial action um, with parliamentary staff, civil servants? I know civil servants had been, had been spoken about, yeah. but is that yeah. possible? I mean, the, the, the FDA um, placed a notice of intention to ballot uh, about two months ago uh, around pay. Um, actually, the cabinet office then got back around the table and improved that offer. Um, and as a result, then we have withdrawn our our call for industrial action. I think where the employer, the government will sit down with the trade unions and, and work and find a solution and give it that time and space to actually sit down and negotiate. I think where that has been happening, we're starting mm. to see um, actual progress. And I think where we're not is where we still have problems. Yeah. 
So that's Jawad Raza, National Officer at the FDA Union, who represents some parliamentary staff. Jawad, thank you so much for joining us. More power to you in the work that you're doing. I'm really glad you were able to come on and explain some of these things to our audiences, because I think sometimes uh, we look at Houses of Commons and we think just the MPs, where, where there is a much broader group of people who are represented. And ultimately, the changes that you're spoken about and the FDA Union are working on are of benefit to everyone. Thank you so much, Jawad, for joining us. We are going to stay on this topic for the end of the show uh, around this toxic work environment and toxicity of our politics in Westminster. Uh, and I'm going to be back with you all after this. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. We've got the lovely Thomas Hartley from Married at First Sight UK joining us on Zoom. Thomas, any advice? Out of the three of us, you're the only one that's been married. Mm. <laughs> any marital advice for me and Stephen? Because we're still Don't looking for it. Mr. Right. <laughs> Make sure they're really, really fit <laughs> and really, really quiet. And really, really well in town. <laughs> okay, so right. no, no chat, big Corey, and <laughs> Joey Page. It's time to welcome into the studio the darkness. Do you have a favourite Easter egg? If someone was to buy you an Easter egg, if I was the CEO of Cadbury's. I would make one out of a thousand Cadbury's Easter eggs. Cadbury's cream one, completely full. Like and put a spoon in with it. Yeah, like the gold. So you could crack it like an actual... Or you could have like a tap. At know. the bottom. Yeah, like on a beer barrel. It'd be lovely if they had soldiers in the middle. You know, little toast soldiers in the middle of the Easter egg. So Frankie, you said like a real egg, like an ostrich egg with some toast on the side. Some toast in the middle. Well, there you go. I'll get in touch with Cadbury's and see if we can get you a deal. We have a wonderful guest, Clive Lewis MP, Labour MP for Norwich South, talking about this Onward report that is finding that as people are getting older, they are not becoming more conservative, as had been the case with previous generations. What's your initial reaction to that? It doesn't come as a complete surprise and a complete shock. Where they end up, though, I think is probably as interesting. And I think with the fragmentation of kind of centre and left parties across Western democracies, but particularly here in the UK with our first past the post system, that means that the Conservatives will still continue to get in more often than not, um, even with a declining share of the vote. You're listening to Fubar Radio. Fubar Radio. Fubar Radio. Fubar Radio. Fubar Radio. Welcome back. It's me, it's me, it's Ali Milani. That's a big Van Vader joke, if anyone gets that, for my professional wrestling fans. I was at the professional wrestling this week. I was invited by WWE, so very, very happy to have been at the O2 for Money in the Bank. But let's get back to politics uncensored. Uh, We've been talking about the toxicity of our politics, um, and now we go to my favorite segment every week, and that's where we speak to normal people, ordinary people, Uh, Not that my guests today and myself aren't ordinary, but I guess uh, once you get into the political sphere, it has a way of clouding you. So my favourite segment of every show is when our wonderful producers go out onto the streets of North London and ask the public uh, a key question every week. And this week it was, what's one question all MPs should be asked before they become politicians? What was the last nice thing you did for somebody? About their education and whether they've attended university. I'd like to know what their passions are. I don't think they should be allowed to be politicians unless they've got kids, for starters. I think all politicians should have kids before they make rules about people's kids. I think they should be well-educated. I think all politicians should um, should actually go through some sort of moral conduct. I think it should be the, the best of us, not a load of boys that went to a boarding school and um, have, have some money. So, you know, it should be, it should be more about your morals and how, how smart you are and how you want to look after the world. What's the last time you did something nice for someone else and didn't expect anything in return? Anything that would make you not consider someone, maybe? If they didn't have any passions. That's a really interesting response. I think one of the things that I was thrown by when I was listening to that was the amount of people that are just desperate for good moral people to enter politics and them to be a representation of the best of us. And I think what we've seen is with this sort of Etonian Uxbridge conveyor belt of politicians, people are tired of the born to rule class, the people who are sort of chiseled from, from birth for public office. And what they really want to know is what are you passionate about? Why do you care? And why should I trust you? And that's 
been the key behind, I think, Myra Black's resignation and the conversations I've had with Mete Jawad and, and Gina around the way that we need to change our politics. We can talk manifestos, we can talk policies, but unless we change the fundamental people, the quality of the people we send to Westminster, then we can't really choose, we can't really change the the very nature of our politics, which is what we all want to come the next general election. It's been a fantastic show. Again, on this topic of politicians, I want to thank my wonderful guests, Gina Miller, activist and leader of the True Affair Party, Joad Raza, national officer at the FDA Union, and Mete Koban, CEO of My Life, My Say, and counselor in Hackney for joining me. You can follow us on politi at Politics Uncensored on Instagram, Twitter. I'm at Ali Milani UK. Thank you so much for joining us. Salams. See you next week.